Father, we thank you for the privilege to be gathered here this morning uh, as your people to worship and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and open our hearts and lives to your word and your spirit. And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will take your living word this morning and use it, we pray, to speak to each one of us. And uh, we thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit with us this morning. And so, Father, we commit our time to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. My uh, message this morning is actually the result of some discussion and interaction that the pastoral staff has had over the last oh, year, two years. Uh, for, for a while, we've had discussion on this topic uh, because we feel it is a topic of utmost importance uh, for all who name the name of Christ. And it's a topic uh, where there's often much misunderstanding and confusion. And the topic, as you may have already noticed, if you have a bulletin, is entitled The Ordinances of the Church. Now, it might be more accurate to title it The Ordinances Given to the Church by the Head of the Church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because these were given to the Church by Jesus Christ himself. Webster's Dictionary defines the word ordinance as, quote, an authoritative decree or direction, an order. So a church ordinance is a prescribed practice. It's something that we believe has been clearly prescribed and ordered by our Lord Jesus Christ, who I already mentioned is the founder and head of the church. According to the Bible Fellowship Articles of Faith, we believe that Christ gave two ordinances to the church, water baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, you may be aware that there are churches that use the term sacrament instead of ordinance. The word sacrament has the idea of a sign, a rite, a ritual, which results in God's grace being conveyed to the individual. That's just kind of wound up, wrapped up in the idea of a sacrament. Typically, there are seven sacraments in these denominations or churches. They are generally baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick. Some do not have all of those, and many of them do. Uh, Some but not all uh, teach that the sacraments are necessary for salvation. Uh, In other words, the sacraments themselves are a means of conveying saving grace to the person who participates in those sacraments. We do not find that the Bible teaches that you can gain grace through any work that you do. In fact, by definition, the word grace is something you receive that you do not deserve, right? Grace is, we say, God's unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. So I can't do anything to earn his grace. The Bible tells us that grace is not given through outward symbols or rituals uh, that are necessary for salvation. Grace is free. God's grace is freely given. In fact, the Bible's crystal clear on that. You know the verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace are ye saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a what? It's a gift of God. And then it's not of what? Works. Lest any man should boast. 
Nobody's going to stand before God and say, you know, I earned my way into heaven. It's God's grace that's given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we prefer to use the term ordinances rather than sacraments. I'm not saying every church that uses the word sacraments has the idea that you're saved by them, but we prefer the word ordinances. Because rather than requirements for salvation, we believe the ordinances are visual aids or pictures or symbols that help us to better understand and appreciate what Jesus Christ accomplished for us in his redemptive work on the cross it's also important uh, when we talk about the ordinances of the church to understand that we we believe they are those things that jesus told us to observe with other christians in other words christ intended we would participate in the ordinances with other members of the body of christ present we do not observe the ordinances in isolation from fellow believers They are a function of the body of Christ. Now, there are three important factors that determine whether a practice should be considered to be an ordinance. We'll test your vision this morning with that small type that I used, that small font. Um, but, But I will be reading it, so... But there are three requirements for something to be considered an ordinance. First of all, it was instituted by Christ. He ordained it. That's the first requirement. The second requirement is it was taught by the apostles. The apostles believed it and they taught it. And the third thing is it was practiced by the early church. The early church implemented it in their practice. Those three things are necessary. And uh, since baptism and the Lord's Supper are the only two practices which qualify under these three factors, there can only be two ordinances, we believe, neither of which are requirements for salvation. I want to make that loud and clear this morning. They are not requirements for salvation, we do not believe. However, They are requirements if we are going to be obedient to the one we claim as Lord and Savior. So our time this morning will not permit me to go into as much detail as we could on each of the ordinances, but I would, what I would like to do this morning is to give a fairly comprehensive overview of each of the ordinances, beginning with baptism, and then after we've examined each of the ordinances, we're going to look at some practical questions that come up uh, about our participation in the ordinances. Um, and since this is a topical message, not a textual message, we're going to be moving through a lot of different passages, so I have put them all up on the screen. So I won't, I won't be asking you to turn in your Bible. We will look at the text on the screen this morning, all right? So let's look at the ordinance of baptism first, what the Bible has to say about this ordinance. First thing I want us to see is the mandate for baptism, the mandate for baptism. Uh, if you can see that well enough, maybe you know it by memory, let's read together Matthew 28, all right? Join me together. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did Jesus institute baptism? Well, that's this. these are words spoken by our Lord just before he went back to heaven. And he made a very clear statement of baptism. He said, make disciples, 
baptizing them. Very clear statement. And important to notice in these words of our Lord is this mandate that he gave concerning baptism is applicable to all nations, right? He said all nations. And it's also applicable uh, to the end of the age. In other words, it is to be practiced at all times and in all places wherever the church of Jesus Christ exists on this planet Earth. Baptism is to be practiced. Another very important truth that comes out of this passage is that only those who become disciples of Jesus Christ are to be baptized. Only those who become disciples of Jesus Christ are to be baptized. That's what Jesus said, right? Make disciples and then baptize them. So is baptism important? Well, I think it is, (laughs) since Jesus is the one that gave the command. Now, I think there are two extremes that we can go to in this matter of baptism. One extreme is seeing it as necessary for salvation. And there are churches that teach that you cannot be saved without being baptized. There are churches that teach what we call baptismal regeneration, that actually you are regenerated, you are born again when you go into the waters of baptism. That's nowhere taught in the Bible. The water doesn't change you. You could go in a 100 times and the water is not going to change your heart at all. So that's one extreme that teaches that it's necessary for salvation. You see, requiring anything in addition to faith in Christ, as I mentioned earlier, is works-based salvation. Anything other than the work of Christ. Actually, if we add something to what Christ did on the cross, necessary for salvation, then we are saying what he did was not sufficient. And that is quite a statement to make. That Jesus Christ's death on the cross is not sufficient for my salvation. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is this. And this is where I think we tend to go in our evangelical churches. Yeah, it's kind of optional. Eh, you know, if if you want to, that's fine. If you don't want to, that's fine. I remember when Shirley and I moved to uh, Wheaton, Illinois, and uh, we began attending a good good Bible church in the town where we lived. And... um, after we were attending there, I was approached by somebody to ask if we were considering becoming members. So I said, well, I'd like to see your statement of faith and your bylaws. And so they gave it to me. And then I was talking to one of the men next the next Sunday, and I said, I see in your statement that you don't require baptism to be a member of your church. No, he said, we don't. I said, you mean to tell me that you could have elders in your church who have never been baptized? Well, he was kind of, you know, taken aback. He said, I don't think we've ever had that. But I said, you could have that. You know, I said, didn't Christ say something about baptism? I think he did. You know, and if he said it, I think it's important, right? It reminds me of the words that Jesus said, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? And so the idea that, well, it's just, you know, if you want to, if you don't want to, that's not, that's not biblical. That's the other extreme. So we need to be balanced on this issue. All right. The mandate is clear from Christ. Now let's move to what I'm calling the manifestations of baptism. How did the early church respond to Christ's mandate? This is the issue of, I said earlier, one of the criteria. Did the early church practice this? So I have a series of passages on the screen. And... uh, I'm going to ask you to read them with me. Um, I would encourage you, if you want to study this issue in more detail in these passages, that you get a CD later of this message, and then you can look at each of these passages. Uh, But this is the book of Acts. This is the Acts of the early church. 
Uh, so let's see what happened in the book of Acts, all right? First passage is on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Read together with me this verse. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people, that was quite a baptism service uh, that day. 3,000 people were added to the church. Then we move up to Acts chapter 8, this passage about Philip, all right? Read it together with me. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. All right. In that same chapter, we have the account of the Ethiopian official, the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip gets involved in talking with and in, in, in talking about the Lord. Let's read this passage. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. All right. So he explained the gospel to this uh, Ethiopian uh, and he and he put his faith in Christ. And he says, hey, apparently Philip had said something to him about baptism also. See, in the early church, it was so crystal clear when they presented the gospel that the two were not separated, as you see in the book of Acts. Uh, they were clear what the, what the uh, command was. All right, now we come to Acts chapter 9, the account of um, Saul, Paul, who became Paul when he was converted. Read with me. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, he, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. The Apostle Paul, this is. Then we come to Acts chapter 10. This is Cornelius, um, a Gentile. And this is quite a, a story involved there. But let's read what, what it says in that chapter. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then we come to Acts 16. You know the story of the Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas are in jail there. And... Uh, there's an earthquake, and the Philippian jailer, jailer had heard them sharing the gospel, and he asked them, you know, what must I do to be saved? That's a great question to be asked, isn't it? Uh, and then here's their answer. Let's read this Acts 16 together. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Do you start to see a pattern in the book of Acts? Did they take seriously what Jesus had told them to do? They certainly did. And, and from those examples of Scripture, we get some important things that come out. Let me just point them out to you, observations here. First of all, the New Testament church faithfully obeyed Christ's command to make disciples and baptize them. They did. They faithfully obeyed what he said. The second thing, and this is very important, in all the scriptures that we just read, baptism always followed, never preceded belief in Christ. 
Baptism always followed, never preceded belief in Christ. It was always they believed and they were baptized. Never they were baptized and then they believed. That's why we often call it believer's baptism. Because it's only for believers. And by the way, this categorically rules out infant baptism. Because an infant cannot exercise faith in Jesus Christ or be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so we do not believe in the practice of infant baptism. Baptism is not something that a person does to be saved. Baptism is something that a saved person does. Okay. Another thing we see in those passages, baptism was a natural and normal step after a person trusted Christ. It was actually a visible a sign of identification with Christ and his church. When they took public stand and were baptized, they were publicly identifying with Jesus Christ and with his church. By the way, in many parts of the world today, when people take that public stand and identify with Christ and his church, they are marked. They are marked for death. And there are many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who to take a stand in baptism is going to cost them their life. Not many of us have had to face that issue. But many do. Dr. Stephen Olford, who was a great uh, preacher of the word of God, he's now with the Lord. He made this statement. In the early church, there was no such thing as unbaptized believers. We are right and in accord with scripture when we insist that before people come into membership, they should show their oneness with Jesus, oneness with his church, oneness with the word by obeying the simple rite of baptism. Now, let me move to the meaning of baptism, this, this symbol, this, this picture that was taught by the apostles. The key text on the meaning of baptism is Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. I'd ask you to read that passage with me together, all right? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The beautiful symbolism of baptism, this verse tells us, involves our identification with Jesus Christ. All right? It says we identify with his death. Notice we are baptized into his death. Going down into the water pictures are dying with Christ. We are identified with his burial. It says we are buried with him by baptism. Going down under the water pictures are burial with him. And we are identified with his resurrection. It says we are raised from the dead. Coming out of the water pictures resurrection and the newness of life that we now enjoy in Christ. We're not the same people anymore. That's what we're giving testimony to in the waters of baptism. In fact, you'll notice that that verse, it says we are risen to walk what? In newness of life. We're we're to walk different than we did before we came to know Christ. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, some of you have this verse memorized, I'm sure. It says, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. Behold, All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When a person is in Christ, they are a new person. When did when did all that happen? Well, you see, at the moment we put our faith in Christ and his death on the cross for us, at that moment, God sees us as having died with Christ. This death is something historic and once for all. 
It happened 2,000 years ago. It is applied to us now through our faith in Christ. But since Christ died in history only once, our death happened in God's way of seeing it on the day that Christ died 2,000 years ago. We died with him the way God sees it. It's applied to our lives at the moment we put our faith in him. But in God's sight, when he died, I died. When he was buried, I was buried. When he was raised, I was raised. And that now becomes a reality in my life. In fact, in Colossians 3.3, we have a parallel uh, verse to this. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. When did I die? Well, in God's sight, it was when Christ died on the cross. It became a reality at the moment. For me, it was February 15th, 1959. When I put my faith in Christ, it was applied to my life. You see, in baptism, we symbolically express our acceptance of death with Christ, putting an end to our old way of life, rising with Christ to begin a new life. We have died to the penalty of sin. We're free from the penalty of sin, right? Because in God's sight, we died back there with Jesus Christ, and we are free from the penalty of sin. Because that's what Jesus was paying for when he died on the cross, right? Our penalty of our sin. Paul put it this way. I have been what? Crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. (laughs) Not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said, I'm living yet, but it's Christ living in me now. But I was crucified with him. So in baptism, we express our acceptance of death with him. See, salvation is a substance. Baptism is a symbol. Salvation is an inner reality. Baptism is the outer sign. One writer put it this way. Baptism gives the expression that we are gods from head to toe. We belong totally to him. Now, let me just talk for a minute about the method. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the method of baptism because I believe the meaning, the meaning that we just talked about indicates the method to to be used. I think that makes it clear. The only way to picture the biblical meaning is by total immersion, not by sprinkling, not by pouring. The meaning determines the method, I believe. Not only that, but the Greek word baptizo, which was just transliterated by the translators when they did the King James Bible, they just took it over and gave us the English word baptize. The word means to dip or to immerse. That's the meaning of the word. To put something into the water, to plunge something into the water that it surrounds it. Interesting, this passage we read earlier, if you noticed this, about the Ethiopian eunuch, it says he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down where? Into the water. (laughs) They went into the water. Because he was going to baptize him by immersion. Um, you don't need to go down in the water uh, if you're not going to do that. And historically, the Christian church practiced only the mode of full immersion until Constantine legalized Christianity in 1330 or 313 A.D. And then they needed to baptize. He made everybody a Christian overnight. You remember that in history? He just said we're a Christian uh, empire now, so everybody's a Christian. Then you have to baptize a lot of people quick. So you use the fastest method you can use to baptize them all. Uh, but they find uh, in the catacombs in Rome, they find these big baptistries that were used uh, to, to immerse people there. It was only later that they began to move away from immersion. So 
we practice baptism by full immersion because it best fits the meaning of the word, because of the historical practice of the early church, and because it best fits the symbolism involved. All right? Now, let me move to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. All right? Let's look at the mandate for the Lord's Supper. What did the Lord say about this? Well, you recall that our Lord instituted the ordinance on the night before his crucifixion. On that night, he was sharing a meal with a supper meal with his disciples. It was the Passover meal, that historical supper for the nation of Israel. When they remembered Israel's deliverance from bondage in Egypt and they were celebrating the Passover that night. And in the midst of that celebration, Jesus took the Passover and he changed the meaning. That was the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. He instituted the supper that night with the bread and the cup. And in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, read this together with me. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, he took that last Passover and he made it the first observance of the Lord's Supper. By what he said and did that night, he showed that he was the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. No more Passover lambs. He was the the final one that had been foretold. By the way, when the curtain was torn from top to bottom in the in the in the uh, temple that day, that's what God was saying. No more, no more uh, Passover lamb. He is the Passover lamb. Jesus said, "Do this in remembrance of me," and he thus established the observance of, as an ordinance for worship. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians and explains the Lord's Supper to us there, he says he got this directly from the Lord. Read this passage with me. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul says, I received this from the Lord. This is the Lord's direction that's been given to me. Now, it's important to to, to uh, take note and be aware that we do use some other terms for this ordinance. For instance, we often call it the Lord's table. From 1 Corinthians 10:21, you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. We will call it the Lord's table sometimes. We will also call it communion from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where it says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? The word communion means fellowship. Some versions translated fellowship. This is a fellowship with, with Christ. We enjoy fellowship with the Lord and with one another when we uh, commemorate the Lord's Supper. That's what it's saying. We are in fellowship with the Lord. Now, what about the manifestations of communion or the Lord's Supper in the early church? We already saw what they did about baptism, okay? What about their response concerning the observance of the Lord's Supper? Well, it doesn't take long to find out when you read the book of the uh, the history of the early church in the book of Acts. You come to chapter 2 of the book of Acts. The church has been born not long before that. And read this verse with me, all right? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. 
That phrase, breaking of bread, is a clear reference to the Lord's Supper, not meaning they just were eating. And by the way, the early church actually did eat a meal called the Love Feast together. And then as part of that, they would remember the Lord. So they actually did have they did have a supper together. Okay, Uh, so but the breaking of bread here was one of the things that says they devoted themselves to clearly the early church observed this ordinance on a regular basis from the very beginning. Uh, as we see here, it's important to note that our Lord did not say how often we should observe uh, the Lord's Supper. In fact, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, it says this, as often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. The Bible nowhere stipulates how often we should participate in the Lord's Supper. Some churches observe the Lord's Supper every Sunday, others once a month, others every two months. Our usual practice is once a month. But since there's no biblical mandate on this, we don't look down on Bible-believing churches that observe it less often or observe it more than we do. There's no clear mandate on that. Hope we understand that. One Bible scholar put it this way. Since the Bible does not give us specific instructions as to the frequency, there's some latitude in how often a church should observe the Lord's Supper. It should be often enough to renew focus on Christ without being so often that it becomes routine. In any case, it's not the frequency that matters, but the hard attitude of those who participate. I personally believe one of the reasons the Lord gave us the Lord's Supper is to keep us near the cross. To keep us near the cross. And to keep us fresh in the confession of our sin. Let's look at the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And just as baptism is a very important picture or symbol, so the Lord's Supper is. Because the bread is a symbol of Jesus Christ's body. As they were eating, Jesus took the bread and said, after he broke it, this is my body. He took the cup and said, "When you, uh, this is my the blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. Now there are churches today that teach or that believe that communion bread actually changes and becomes the body of Christ. This is the teaching of the church. They also believe that the juice of the grape actually changes and becomes the blood of Jesus Christ. This is called transubstantiation. And uh, this is a major teaching of uh, one of the major churches of the world. Unfortunately, if that were true, that it actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, it would amount to a cannibalistic practice, and it would not only be that, but even worse, it would be a re-crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says he died once for our sins, never to be re-crucified. And so to say that it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ would be a re-crucifixion of our Lord. Now, suppose I take out my wallet and I show you this picture and I say to you, look, this is my beautiful wife. Uh, what do I mean? Obviously, I don't mean that this piece of photographic paper is actually my wife. But I'm saying to you, this is my wife. And I'm using a metaphor, a figure of speech. What I actually mean is this represents my wife, right? When you look at this, you'll think of my wife. It's a picture. And she is very beautiful, too. But that's what Jesus was saying when he took those elements. This is a picture. When you look at these elements, you will think of me. That is exactly what Jesus meant. It is symbolic. So the Lord's Supper is first and foremost a memorial of Jesus and his redemptive death. 
Just as the Passover was a remembrance of God's redemption of his people from slavery in Egypt, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of his death that brought forgiveness and freedom from sin and and reconciled us to God. And secondly, the Lord's Supper is a present fellowship with Christ. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we share, it says, in a communion, a fellowship with the blood of Christ, with the body of Christ. We are in a real sense in fellowship with Christ. That's why I say, I mean, it is to keep us near the cross, near Christ uh, on that regular basis. It doesn't mean we don't walk in fellowship with him every day. But as a corporate body of Christ, he gave us this picture to constantly remind us. So I believe every time we observe the Lord's Supper, three things should be present. One, it should be a time of reflection and remembrance. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Secondly, it should be a time of self-examination. The scripture says, examine yourself. (laughs) God wants us to keep short accounts with sin in our lives as, as believers. And thirdly, it should be a time of anticipation because he said we do this, how long? Until he comes, until he comes. So I believe it's clear from the word of God that our Lord commanded two and only two ordinances for his church to observe until he comes. Now, it's interesting to compare the two. And I put a, I'm going to put a chart up here. And by the way, if you want a copy of this chart, they'll be on the table out there in, in the uh, narthex. You can get, uh, but I want to just quickly compare the two with you because I, I think it's helpful. So on one side, we have water baptism. On the other, the Lord's Supper. First comparison is water baptism is done only once and uh, the Lord's Supper is done many times. Okay. Baptism is done normally only once. Lord's Supper many times. Baptism, water baptism is done at the beginning of the Christian life. That should be, that should be the normal pattern. At the beginning of the Christian life, the Lord's Supper is done throughout the Christian life. Boy, you will have to pick up the sheet. I can't even read that. <laughs> uh, I apologize. You take me by faith that you can get the chart. So one's done at the beginning of the Christian life. The other was done throughout the Christian life. The key word in baptism is union. My union with Christ. We saw that in Romans 6. I am identified with him. I died with him. I was buried with him. I rose with him. The key word in in the Lord's Supper is communion, fellowship with him. All right? In water baptism, I remember my death with Christ. In the Lord's Supper, I remember Christ's death for me. That's, That's two different things, you understand? I remember my death with Christ. I remember my death or Christ's death for me. In water baptism, because of the cross, I have a new life. In the Lord's Supper, because of the cross, I can enjoy the new life. In water baptism, I am a new creature in Christ. In the Lord's Supper, I need to walk as a new creature in Christ. And in water baptism, I'm, it, it has to do with my standing, my position. I stand, I stand completely forgiven of my sins before Jesus Christ. And the Lord's Supper has to do with my actual state, my practice. My practice may not be matching my standing. That's why it says, examine yourselves. Is my practice in line with my standing before the Lord? So those are two comparisons of, of, of the two ordinances. Now, I want to move now to some, what I'm calling uh, important questions that come up as we talk about the ordinances, all right? I want to go through some questions here. First question, these biblical truths concerning the ordinances given by our Lord bring us face to face with some important questions. First question 
is this. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? That's the most important question. Both of these ordinances point back to his death on the cross for you. When he paid the penalty for your sin that you deserve to pay. And that you will pay unless you accept and receive and put your faith in what he did on the cross of Jesus Christ. Has there been a time in your life where you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Where you recognize, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself. Jesus died in the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. I put my faith and trust in what he did on the cross. I trust him as my Savior. That is the most important question you face in your life on this earth. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Bible says, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Has that taken place in your life? If not, then today would be the day to do it if you haven't done so. Second question. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, have you given testimony in baptism? If not, why not? Whatever the reason may be, in light of the word of God, I would urge you to take the step of obedience to your Lord at the first possible opportunity, if you have not done so. In fact, our next baptism class will be on March 6th. Yeah, see, if you are not aware of the biblical teaching, I'll tell you, we take too much for granted. I know that there are people who have been Christians for some years that have, have never heard what the Bible says about this issue. I know because it happened to me. Nobody explained it to me from the Bible until many years after I had come to faith in Christ. See, if you were not aware of the biblical teaching until now, then you were not, you have not been living in deliberate disobedience to the Lord. But if you continue to resist, in spite of what you now know the Bible says, you will be living in known disobedience to the Lord. I quoted this verse before, Luke six forty six, where Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? My dear friend, don't be held back because of such things as phobia, water, fear of being in front of people, physical problems. These are very real issues that people deal with. But we can work with you on those issues, and the Lord can give you the grace and strength. There are, a way to deal, there are ways to deal with those issues. Third question. If I was baptized before trusting in Christ, do I need to be rebaptized? Now, two common examples of how this happens is those who were baptized as infants or those who were baptized later in life but did not truly know Jesus as their Savior when they were baptized. So the question is, do I need to be rebaptized? Well, in the light of the teaching of Scripture that baptism is to take place after a person has received Jesus Christ as her Savior, I believe the only possible answer to that is yes. Fourth question. If I was baptized as a believer by a mode or method other than immersion, do I need to be rebaptized? This is not an easy issue. Not an easy issue. And I think a person has to study the scripture, the passages we went over very carefully. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible describe? What is the meaning of baptism? 
I remember dealing with people in the church I pastor in Jersey who ha- had a struggle with this issue of baptism. I did not want them to be baptized because I said they needed to be baptized. I wanted them to be baptized because they became convinced that's what the Bible says. So we would talk a lot about, you know, what the Bible says until they came to their own conviction. I personally believe that every person who is baptized needs to be doing it because they're convinced that's what God told them to do, not because, uh, you know, the pastor said they need to be baptized. However, in order to become a member of Cedar Crest, a person must have been baptized by immersion as a believer. That, that's a requirement to be a, a member of Cedar Crest. Not baptized by immersion here, but baptized by immersion as a believer. Okay. Fifth question. Should a believer who has not been baptized participate in the Lord's Supper? Now, this is a question we hardly ever think about. Hardly ever. And there's not an explicit statement in the Scripture that a person must be baptized before being able to participate in the Lord's Supper. And as a church, we have no regulation concerning this issue. However... If baptism is the first step of Christian discipleship and obedience, it would seem to raise questions about saying that I'm in fellowship with the Lord as as I participate in the Lord's Supper, but I have not yet taken what is normally the first step of obedience, mandated by the Lord. Clearly, the Lord's Supper is to be partaken of only by believers in Jesus Christ. Baptism is intended to be an identifying mark of a believer in Christ. And there are churches that require water baptism before a person can partake of the Lord's Supper. However, as I mentioned, Scripture nowhere gives a clear statement on this, but I think it's something that we need to give some serious thought to as individuals before the Lord. Last question. At what age should children be baptized or allowed to take the Lord's Supper? And unfortunately, this is an issue that is hardly ever spoken to in churches. Parents are just kind of adrift that they're on their own uh, on this issue. That's one of the reasons why we have had discussions on the ordinances the last year or two, specifically because of this issue. Well, the Bible doesn't give us a precise age. All we can legitimately infer from biblical teaching is that a child must be able to give a credible profession of faith and must demonstrate an understanding of the significance of the ordinances. Before taking communion, the main requirement for all children, as with all adults, is that they have received the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Now, even though some children make this salvation decision at an early age, I believe Being baptized and partaking of the Lord's Supper should not be rushed into. I think sometimes we do it disfavor by rushing our children into it. As a child matures in his faith and it is evident that he's truly born again, the father and and our mother should be perceptive as to when he's ready to receive such teaching. The spiritual maturity level of one child differs from another, so you can't, you know, have a fixed age. In September of 2010, after months of prayerful study and discussion, the Cedar Crest Board of Elders approved a process designed to equip parents to teach their children about baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe that parents have the primary responsibility for instructing their children and overseeing their spiritual development. That's not the church's, it's not primarily the church's responsibility, it's the parents'. But since the church has the primary responsibility for the administration of the ordinances, we believe it is important, in fact, imperative for the church and the parents 
to partner together in preparing young people to participate in the ordinances. As I said before, I think we often take this too lightly. And so from this point on, we will not baptize any children or young people who have not gone through a preparation process. And uh, we have a pamphlet that we put out that explains that process. Uh, there are copies on the table. It's called Preparing Young People for Participation in Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And uh, this, as I said, this process involves pre- equipping the parents to help their children prepare to participate uh, in the ordinances. So if you're interested in knowing more about that, be sure to pick up one of these brochures. If you have questions about it, feel free to speak to any one of the pastors about any questions you may have. I hope, I hope you have some context to why we feel this is so important to help prepare young people. In closing, I think it's important for all of us who name the name of Christ to be reminded of these words of our Lord in John 14. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I think it's clear that he has commanded two ordinances for his people to keep. I trust that we will express our love for him. First, by identifying with him once and for all in the waters of baptism. And secondly, by fellowshipping with him in the Lord's Supper as a regular practice throughout our Christian life. It's a regular practice in our Christian life to fellowship in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we pray that uh, you will take your word this morning and by your spirit search our hearts. Father, I pray if there's anyone under the sound of your word this morning who has never put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that you would speak to their hearts this morning and may they reach out by faith and trust Christ today. And, Father, I pray that you will search the hearts of those who claim Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Are we living in obedience to him? We thank you, Lord, for these pictures, these symbols that remind us, first of all, that we died with you to the penalty of sin, and we are risen to new life, and then that we can walk in fellowship with you. Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much that you gave us these pictures. Help us to be faithful in our response to you out of a heart of love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask that we stand uh, for closing uh, benediction. Will you please stand? Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. God bless you.